0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Networks. I'm your host Ricarda, and I'm here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Networks. I'm your host Ricarda, and I'm here today to talk to Tom Mullaney about his new book, The Chinese Typewriter A History. To be sure, the title is as good as underselling the book, which is in fact one of the first forays into modern Chinese information technology. It spans roughly 150 years from the early 1800s and the advent of telegraphy all the way to the 1950s and the advent of computing. In this podcast, Tom and I discuss the frau- relationship between Chinese writing and global modernity, as well as the earliest and varied attempts to make the Chinese script fit for Western communication systems, from telegraphy to Morse code, typewriters, and early computing. But we also talk about the importance of remembering quote-unquote failed attempts, ideas and alternative approaches in history, the politicization of the term CJK, as well as the dangers of living in a monoculture, and how inbuilt inequalities eventually led to more innovative approaches in Chinese modern information technology, such as the input method and predictive text analysis. Before going into too much detail, I encourage you all to get a hold of Tom Mullaney's new book, which is in fact the precursor of a second book on the Chinese computer. And now, please do enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ricardo, and I'm here today to talk to Tom Mullaney about his new book, The Chinese Typewriter, A History. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, now, I was wondering if you um, could start out by telling us a little bit a little bit about yourself and how you came to study Chinese history.
1: Uh, so, well, I'm uh, I'm an East Coast, uh, born and raised, individual East Coast of the U.S. and California transplant. Uh, but I started my, I guess I started my forays into the study of China by way of language. Uh, I had a, I had no uh, indication or trajectory as a middle schooler, a high schooler that i was ever going to go the route of of the study of china uh history probably was 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 noticeable or someone might have guessed if they ever met me that 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 may have been in my future uh, but china really was a uh, a kind of surprise uh course change when i was an undergraduate uh, in baltimore maryland at johns hopkins university and i had a uh i had a chance encounter with uh, a first-year Chinese language instructor Li Laoshi, uh, who was, as anyone who ever took her class, I think, would say, uh, was just absolutely effective and charismatic and magnetic. And you know, so basically, under her guidance, one day became a week, one week became a semester, and I, I kind of woke up one day and. I was a, a junior in studying abroad in Beijing, and uh, and and that's when I think those two sides of myself really came together. The I, I I've always loved studying language, uh, and I've always loved history, and uh, China came in as I, I think it's true for so many people by way of an inspirational teacher that I met along the way, um, and then I uh, went went ahead to uh, I was actually considering. Journalism for a, for a while, documentary filmmaking, and when I applied to grad school for history, uh, Chinese history, I also applied to journalism school for mainly for documentary filmmaking, and I had to make a decision. I was either going to go to uh, Berkeley to study journalism, or I was going to go to Columbia to uh, pursue my PhD in history and. Long story short, I went, the, I went one route, and um, and uh, here I am today.
0: You start out your book, really, with a fascinating, albeit little-discussed moment during the Parade of Nations at the Olympic Games, which took place in Beijing in 2008. Could you tell our listeners why this moment is so crucial in and of itself, but also for setting the stage of what it is that you're doing in your book?
1: Sure. So the uh, I try to make the case in the opening of the book – that there is a moment in the 2008 Olympics that might just be the one and only revolutionary moment of the entire spectacle. The spectacle is, you know, it's it was jaw dropping. It 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 cost an astronomical amount of money. Uh the planning of it was was more complex and and uh, in many in many ways belabored than any other opening ceremony of any other Olympic Games in history, and so oftentimes people get caught up in in those statistics, how much it cost and how many people, how many participants took took part and so forth. But in, in many ways, all of that stuff was uh, kind of expected. Uh, it, it it still fit in the narrative in many ways of the, the Olympic games and certain kinds of spectacles we've seen in the Olympic games in the past. But there was one moment that really short circuited the whole kind of logical circuit board of the Olympic games. And in many ways, I think the, the global order, and this was the parade of nations. This is the, the part of the opening ceremony where the different teams, uh, head on to, in this case, the uh, the grounds of the bird's nest, and then walk around the grounds uh, carrying a sign in front of the delegation that has the, the, the country's name on it. And uh, what's fascinating about this moment is that it was the first time in Olympic history in which the Parade of Nations was taking place uh, in a host country whose language does not have an alphabet or a syllabary and what's important about that is that in the uh, according to the official rules of the Olympic Games uh, that the opening ceremony is governed by a kind of set of regulations and these regulations in their earliest form back at the beginning of the 20th century were let's say explicitly eurocentric. Uh, they, 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 they outlined that uh, this parade of nations would take place in alphabetical order. And so in essence, the assumption was when these regulations were put down, that probably people weren't imagining the day when, if and when it would take place, the games would take place in in Japan or in Korea or, or in China or elsewhere in the world. Uh, but, but thinking about the the Western European and maybe United States context, and so the idea is that the parade of you know these teams go out and maybe Albania is first or maybe Armenia or however it's going to be A through Z, traveling around the grounds. Well, you know along the way and in into the midpoint of the 20th century, uh, th- th- these regulations. Underwent what, on the face of it, looks like a uh, a kind of decentering, a a, a a universalization of the regulations, and and the the actual rules were changed or adjusted, and the new wording of the regulations for the Olympic Games, which stand to the present day, is that the parade of nations will take place in alphabetical order, according to in essence how the alphabet works in the host country. And so suddenly, you know, if we're going to have this uh, the Olympics in Russia, well, it will be in alphabetical order according to the Cyrillic alphabet as it operates in the Russian language. And so it seems, on the face of it, that the Olympic Games has become truly universal and kind of culturally relativist and and agnostic with respect to to the diversity of human languages. Um, and so, you know, we have our we, we have our truly uh, global and universal Olympic Games. and As we move into this, the second half of the 20th century, there were moments in which this could have broken down, uh, by which I mean we, we could have seen uh, a host country attempt to order the, the Olympic Games according to a different set of logics. Most notably, uh, the Olympic Games in Japan could, in theory, have had the, Olymp- the, the the parade of Nations organized according to the kanji uh, of uh, of the the, the various uh, um, participating uh, countries um, but they the Japan and the Olympic organizing Committee decided not to do that, decided to uh, use a, a kind of alphabetic uh, orientation. And so the very first time that the the world had witnessed a non, Western alphabet as the organizing principle of the Parade of Nations was in uh, Korea, uh, in the Seoul Olympics, in which for the first time, the Parade of Nations took place according not to a Western alphabet or syllabary, but in in, in accordance to Korean hangul. And this was, if you go back to the, uh, the sort of uh, Newspaper reports and media coverage of this. This was a, a source of curiosity. This was a talking point. And yet, of course, Korean is an alphabet. Uh, Hangul is an alphabet, and so it still follows the script as as we would expect. Well, this breaks down completely in two thousand eight. Uh, the the first team enters the, the 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 bird's nest. It's Greece, as always, uh, because they're the the perpetual host uh, of the Olympics. But then the, the next series of countries start to enter the bird's nest, and suddenly the global viewing audience has no idea what they're looking at. It is not according to the any sort of alphabetical order. It is not according to any f- basic phonetic order. Uh, instead, it is organized according to the uh, the kinds of strokes out of which the initial Chinese character of the country's name uh, is is composed, and the number of strokes in the, the characters themselves. So this would be a very familiar kind of organizational system for someone who studies China or you know for older generations in China. But this simply blew the mind of the the television viewing audience of the uh, the sort of, blogosphere surrounding and watching this, people had no idea what they were looking at. And, um, and what's fascinating about this is it was clearly intentional. The Chinese Olympic Committee could have very, very easily decided to organize the opening ceremony of the Olympics according to alphabetical order of the Pinyin Romanized Pronunciation Of the you know of the Chinese character names of of these countries, they could have done that and and played along with the rules and kind of fed into this idea of the universalism of the Olympic Games and the regulations that govern it. But clearly, someone or some some set of people decided we're not going to do this. Let's 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 have some fun. Uh, Let's organize it. uh, Let's organize the parade of nations according to a categorical system that is indigenous to Chinese culture. And of course, there are many, there are more than one of those. But let's let's actually intentionally confuse the global audience as a kind of statement. It cost them no money to do so. Um, It uh, it added nothing to the budget of, you know, the towering budget of the games. But in my reading of this, and and I try to make the case, is that this was a statement in which China was saying to the world, there is, uh, there is a Tao to your logos. There, is, there are alternate ways of organizing reality, of knowledge, of language that exists in this world. And we're not going to play by these uh, seemingly universalist rules of the Olympic Games as formulated in Western Europe and the United States. Uh, we're going to foil them a little bit. We're going to, in fact, reveal or point out the fact that these are not universal at all. They seem universal, but they are actually false universalisms. Uh, and so this was a just a, a kind of moment. It, it came and went. Um, and, uh, but in, in my reading, I think that this was a, a truly revolutionary moment. I talk about it in the book as if it were a prank by Banksy. Uh, it just seemed like the perfect way to you know, to spray water in the circuit board um, just for a moment.
0: Absolutely. It was hugely fascinating for me to read as well. And they did indeed succeed um, in sort of really confusing the audience as you as you tell us in the book as well. Um, now, in the first chapter, um, which is called Incomp. Compatible with modernity, um, you start out with an American cartoon mocking the impossibility of an imagined Chinese typewriter sometime around the year 1900. This is also, I think, in many ways, you know, um, comes back to what you were saying just now, this um, sort of misunderstanding um, of, of the Chinese script. Could you tell us why the turn of the century and these cartoons are so telling?
1: When uh, So the cartoons are really powerful and offensive and just overwhelming in many of these early cartoons from 1900 and 1901 and 1903 and uh, you know for anyone who hasn't seen these images in the book or online they show they they portray the these typists these chinese typists as dehumanized kind of uh, subhumanoid figures uh, and they present them either as clacking away on a massive massive keyboard with hundreds and thousands of keys or in other cases you portray a, a a Chinese figure running and scurrying over top of a typewriter that's the size of a building and I you know I looked at these images I, I first started coming across these images about a decade ago and at first I thought I knew what I was looking at I was I was sure. Of what I was looking at, and, and I, the way I described it to myself or made sense of it, was this is a conscious uh, caricature and denigration of uh, Chinese language. Uh, it's a racialization, and this is really, in essence, par for the course at this turn of the century period when one encounters um, anti-Chinese and racist imagery and you know descriptions. Uh, at every turn in, in 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 popular American media and elsewhere, and I thought, okay, that's what this is. Someone, the cartoonist, is sitting down and is setting out to make fun of China, the Chinese language, Chinese people, and this is their strategy for doing so. And I, that that interpretation stayed with me for a long time. But then slowly, and it wasn't. It, it took a long time, but until about I don't know year four or five or six of the project. I started to become unsure of that reading. Uh, clearly these were race this was racist imagery, clearly it was symptomatic of the era and sort of par for the course, but there was something else going on which it took me time to become sensitized to. And that was how come when ever uh someone in the year 1900 onward uh, set about to imagine and then caricaturize uh, or just simply imagine without attempting to 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 consciously denigrate uh, uh, um, uh, the Chinese language or this machine why did their imaginations always turn to keyboards and keys this seems on the face of it like a really ridiculous question because you know, in common sense, a typewriter is a thing with a keyboard. It is, by definition, a thing with keys. Uh, except for the fact that that's not true. Uh, no god in any religion has ever said a typewriter is a thing with a keyboard. It is a thing with keys. And in fact, when you go back to the opening decades of Western typewriting, in the immediate wake of the American Civil War and the the development of this new precision engineering. Kind of manufacturing uh, industry of typewriting, there were many, many different types of typewriters. I'm talking about the 1870s and 80s and 90s. There were typewriters that had uh, that are familiar today, the the single shift uh, uh, keyboard typewriter made famous by Remington. But there were also typewriters in which the upper and lower case were all on one keyboard uh, with no shift key at all, uh, and Very importantly for us, there were typewriters that had no keyboard at all, uh, that when someone wanted to type the letter A or the letter L, they would bring this metal pointer over top of a guide that had all of the letters of the Latin alphabet on it. and When you brought the pointer over the letter you wanted, it would bring a corresponding type mechanism inside the machine. It would bring the letter A or the letter L into the type position, and then you would depress a lever and complete the type act. But there was no no keyboard whatsoever. You didn't depress keys with your fingers. And there were lots of others uh, along the way. So in other words, there were many different, uh, not only many different typewriters, but there were many different types of typewriters. And so uh, the reason that this is important, this isn't obviously the book is not um, exclusively or not focused on, excuse me, on the Western typewriter. But the reason that this is so important, this, these early years, is that in the 1870s and 80s and 90s, as various uh, engineers and inventors, largely from the Western world, are setting out to conceptualize what a typewriter could look like for. Uh, Siamese writing or for Korean writing or for Arabic or for a variety of other uh, non-western writing systems. They actually had a much wider set of, uh, and I use the term technolinguistic, these these technological and linguistic, these material linguistic starting points with which to undertake this uh, imagination process. So in, in chapter one, I, I talk about the history of the Siamese typewriter, and I note that you know in the uh, close to the turn of the century, actually the, the closing decades of the of the nineteenth century, when uh, a a reformist uh, Siamese court wants to build a typewriter for the Siamese um, uh, writing system and dispatches a uh, an advisor, an American advisor to court, back to the United States to study how this could be built. This uh, this. This advisor uh, sets out and in kind of a Goldilocks story, investigates the different kinds of typewriters which exist in the world at that time, and you know, looks at the Remington style, looks at the double keyboard style, looks at other typewriters, and ultimately decides that the typewriter that we all now know and love of the Remington fame and Olivetti fame was in fact not the best starting point, not a good palette with which to try to build one uh, machine for the Siamese typewriter, and instead signs a contract uh, or starts a contractual relationship with the manufacturers of that double keyboard that I mentioned, where all of the upper and lower case are on the keyboard. And the reason he chooses it is pretty obvious: there is no upper case in in Siamese and later Thai writing, um, and so we we can't afford to take half of the graphemes in the writing system and place it on this much, much more inefficient and costly shift layer. We want them all in front of us. Um, There are a lot of factors that went into the decision, but the important point is he had more than one starting point with which to imagine what this machine could look like. and He also had machines that had no keyboard at all. Coming back to the imagery in 1900 and onward, um, around year four or five of the project, it began to dawn on me that I should ask the question of my archives of of my of, of my own thinking. Uh, maybe this early diversity of typewriters, this kind of early wild west of what typewriters could be, was dying out by the year 1900 and by the 20th century. Maybe it's maybe, uh, Uh, The broader, what I refer to in the book as the techno-linguistic imagination of the, I'll use the broad moniker, the Western world, but in this case, the United States, had died out from this early stage of diversity into a kind of monoculture of Remington single-shift keyboard machines, uh, and a growing sense, especially in the 1900s, 1910s, 20s, 30s, and onward, that a typewriter with a shift key and a keyboard was not merely one type of typewriter the way it used to be. It was a typewriter. It was the sine qua non of a typewriter. There could be no such thing as a typewriter that didn't have this. And so when someone sits down to imagine what a typewriter looks like for the one major non alphabetic script in the world, uh, the way I describe it is that there's a kind of there's a kind of mental algorithm that plays out in the mind. And it goes something like this. A typewriter is a machine that has keys and a keyboard. Uh, There is one key per letter in the writing system. Chinese, we know, doesn't have letters. It has characters. We know that there are tens of thousands of these characters. Ergo, a Chinese typewriter is a machine with thousands and thousands of keys, one for each character. And no matter where you look in these popular imaginations and you know uh, narratives and cartoons that venture into the idea of the chinese typewriter they will all come back to this imagery and so i kind of i realized uh, at first i had summed it up in my mind as this is a racist cartoon it's a dehumanizing denigrating cartoon which it is but i realized that there was a, another dimension at play and the way i put it in the book is when we look at these kinds of cartoons that portray Chinese typewriters in this ridiculous, monstrous light. We are in fact staring in the face of the death mask of our own techno-linguistic imagination. We are staring in the face of our own inability to imagine um, anything beyond the Remington monoculture. Uh, and so it, it it adds this other dimension to to um to the story and that's what I try to venture that's into fantastic in chapter thank one. you so
0: much maybe we'll get to talk about this um, mentality of what you see is what you get which we're still sort of perpetuating today with our qwerty keyboard mm-hmm. a little later but before we do that um i I want to go along with the book, and in chapter two, you um, you talk a little, you go back a little bit in time as well, and talk about the birth of the quote-unquote puzzle of the Chinese of Chinese typewriting, and um, you've talked about this a little bit already um, in your in your answer just now. But could you talk um, a bit more about the earliest attempts around the 1900s? um and then the different approaches that there were to the chinese typewriting
1: sure sure so in uh in chapter 2 um chapter 2 is is centers around this idea of the chinese puzzle um and more than that of what i refer to in the book as puzzling chinese and the the central premise there is that it's very easy to sit down and imagine a, a project about, you know, Chinese in the information age, in the contemporary information age, and to start out with the assumption from page one that the problem, the so-called problem of Chinese, is obvious and it's always existed. There is no need to even think about it. Uh, and you know, the, and the and the problem can be summarized very basically, and I do so in the book that how do you, you know, how do you design morse code for without letters how do you design a typewriter that can fit on your tabletop that can fit tens of thousands of characters so it's very easy to to articulate the problem um but i wanted to take a step back in in this chapter in chapter two to say listen we actually need to go back uh to the the moment in which um we need to go back to the moment in which the uh, the puzzle of Chinese was first being articulated and first being created. So instead of just taking the Chinese puzzle as a starting point, let's actually turn it into a process. Go back in time and see how exactly Chinese was being puzzled by a different set of actors. And and I look at uh, two uh, pre-typewriting. And then concurrent with typewriting, but pre typewriting technologies, movable type and telegraphy. And, um, you know, in a nutshell, uh, around the, let's say, late 1700s and certainly into the 1800s, a new discourse was emerging uh, in the Western world, especially Western Europe, that began to describe Chinese as a problem. Or as a challenge within the realm of letterpress printing or movable type printing, which is really fascinating when you step back and think about you know the the the, the, the basic history that movable type is invented in China prior to the uh, to Europe. Um, but in any event, there is this this peculiar inversion in which Western Europeans, French, German, British, uh, soon Americans are now speaking of Chinese movable type. Uh, as 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 a kind of incompatible relationship, that it's really hard to set Chinese and movable type. And what they're really talking about uh, in the late seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds, is a desire to. And I refer to uh, this in the book as sedentarizing, as kind of they want uh, as keeping in one place the compositor, the the typesetter. The ideal of the typesetter in the context of Western letterpress and Western uh, movable type printing is that the body of the compositor should be as, well, the the lower part of the body, the legs, should be as stationary as possible. Uh, You don't want your compositor walking over great distances left and right. Their Their upper extremities, their arms are, of course, very, very active and moving and so forth and so on but uh, the entirety of the, of the writing system should be there in front of him. Now, in the case of Chinese movable type from its inception and all the way into the history, its ongoing history, um, in, again, concurrent with what I'm discussing in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, is a different relationship with language. In Chinese movable type, it is, uh, the, the compositor is peripatetic, He moves around. He walks through language. He does not surround language. Language surrounds him, and that's simply the way it works. Uh, And so, you you know, the more frequent characters are in racks closer to the body, the starting point body of the of the compositor. uh, More infrequent characters are further away, and so we actually you know they translate ideas of frequency and infrequency into. Somatic categories of close and far away and you know takes more time takes less time and this is you know i, I can't impress upon the reader enough this is just the way it is and for argumentative sake for the, pur- the for the purpose of understanding kind of the history of this, we have to treat that as as okay uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a problem um, in in this uh, you know from its inception it is turned into a problem when once again the uh, a new set of parameters or a new set of requirements are foisted upon the idea of movable type that again there was no god in any religion that said this is how movable type has to be the compositor has to stay as still as possible that's that's the goal that's the one that is the meaning of movable type um and so what they're trying to conceptualize in printing houses in France and uh, later in Germany and Great Britain is how can we um, reimagine Chinese movable type printing so as to keep the compositor in, in one place and allow him to surround writing in the same way or in as parallel a way as the Western compositor surrounds the alphabetic uh, writing systems of the world. Can we do that? And so one of the most fascinating ventures or forays into this is uh, is called Divisible Type. And it was first uh, invented by uh, one of the premier French uh, um, um, punch cutters and, and type designers of his, a, of his, of his era, uh, Marcelin Legrand, uh, who's uh, just a towering figure in his own right, in his work with uh, Guillaume Potier. On various works on the translation of the Dao De Jing into French and a variety of others, and as part of that translation process, Potier and Legrand consider whether or not they can create an entirely new kind of Chinese font. Now, let's let's just point this out. They they didn't have to do this. They there were Chinese fonts they could have used for this publication of the Dao De Jing, and they could have just gone ahead, but they decided instead to puzzle Chinese, to turn the question of Chinese writing into a puzzle that uh, had a set of logics to this puzzle, it had a set of goals to what this puzzle might achieve, um, but basically to turn it into a kind of problem. In, In humanities, we might refer to this as problematization. They wanted to problematize Chinese, to turn it into a problem. And the problem that they turned it into or the puzzle they turned it into was, well, we know that Chinese characters are modular. They are you know, built up out of other repeating and, uh, and smaller pieces, sometimes referred to as radicals, but, but not quite radicals uh, for the simple reason that these pieces can show up in different locations in a character, different sizes, different proportions. And so the puzzle was this. Could we sit down and just analyze all Chinese characters, or as many Chinese characters in existence, to figure out how many of these modular metal pieces we would need in order to be able to, uh, by by by, kind of bringing these smaller metal sorts together, create all Chinese characters in existence. So one example might be uh, the the radical co, which is the mouth radical. Now, the mouth radical is one of the 214, by this point, recognized radicals. And yet, sometimes it shows up on the left side of the character, occupying maybe a third of the horizontal space. Sometimes it shows up on the top of characters. Uh, It can can show up in a different set of positions and a different set of uh, shapes. So what, what Potier and Lecon set out to do is to say, how many different ways does Ko show up? And let's set those different variations of Ko onto little metal sorts. And then if we want to build character A, uh, which has this radical in a certain place, we will, we'll have a sort for that. We'll, we'll build it that way. And, and what they figure out is that um, just over 2,000 of these modular pieces uh, the, the exact numbers in the book, but just over 2,000 of these modular pieces were all they would need in order to produce tens of thousands of different Chinese characters. Now, a listener might say, wow, 2,000 is a lot. Well, 2,000 is a lot, but it's a lot less than 60, 70,000. Uh, and so, and it raised the possibility, maybe not of for the compositor to completely surround the language the way they would surround a, a German. You know, a German typecase or English language typecase, but a lot closer to that ideal, uh, which is emerging in the 17 and 1800s, and uh, and this idea is picked up by um, a, a, a German uh, printer, uh, Bayer Uh It's also picked up by a set of American printers, co- constantly coming back to to Chinese and sharing. They share this this fascination with not just with Chinese. But with the specific way that Potier and Legrand had puzzled Chinese, there was some, they they were you know they were just crazy enough, just eccentric enough to be willing to dedicate months and years of their life to this way of obsessing over the Chinese language, as opposed to a number of other ways that some of the other actors that I describe in the book decide to puzzle and obsess over Chinese. Now, the reason that this is important is that this divisible type approach to Chinese, reappears uh, in the early 20th century in the work of uh, this brilliant overseas Chinese student named Qi Xuan, who studies at uh, New York University um, in the 19-teens. And he's, he's at this stage, um, and the history of Chinese typewriting is at this stage where the uh, there is no clear paradigm for how a Chinese typewriter should be built. There's a variety of others who are building these things or conceptualizing these things uh, that are referred to as common usage Chinese typewriters. And the basic premise of these typewriters is, well, the real trick of Chinese typewriting is not how to fit all 70 plus thousand characters. The real trick is to how to figure out statistically through rigorous counting and measurement, which how many characters we actually need to put on the machine and you know and 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 that will account for the greatest percentage of usage um, so basically, how do we scientifically include and exclude is the puzzle of the common usage Chinese typewriter, but this gentleman, X Xuan, was not interested in that puzzle. He wanted a solution to the Chinese typewriter in which it this machine would be capable of a sitting on top of your type of your t- of your desk and at the same time producing. Tens of thousands of Chinese characters. And so he comes back to the question of breaking Chinese characters up into their modular pieces. Uh, and he himself sets out upon his own study and subdivision of Chinese characters. And he arrives at largely the same conclusion as this Frenchman and German publisher and American publishers in the 19, uh, 1800s that just over 2,000 pieces embedded in, inside his typewriter would allow anyone to compose all of the chinese characters that exist. and he referred to it or this he didn't refer to it this way but later people who pick up on this idea it's brilliant they will refer to this not as pinyin like the the term that we know so well of sounding out spelling out the sound of chinese characters but the, but referring to it or later generations will refer to this as pinxing shape spelling to spell out the shape of the chinese character. And so it was a totally different way of imagining um, how a Chinese typewriter might work. Now, it was never mass manufactured. Uh, The the divisible type or combinatorial approach to Chinese typewriting uh, basically loses the battle with the common usage typewriter I talked about just a moment ago. Uh, It's The common usage typewriter is mass manufactured. It becomes the de facto paradigm of Chinese typewriting. And yet, in the background is this kind of minority report of this entirely alternate way of imagining how this machine could be built. Um, and uh, just as a closing point for this this note, I think this is really important. You know, Qixuan is a failure. He's a he's a you know, if we want to just be really brutal about this, he loses. He's a failure. He doesn't succeed in this. And yet, as historians of technology, we are more interested in many ways in failures than in successes. This is not a A hero story of of the counterpart, the Chinese counterparts of Bill Gates and the Chinese counterpart of Steve Jobs and the Chinese counterpart of Grace Hopper, that shouldn't be our goal. Our goal should be to reconstruct in its original complexity, this broader field of activity and conceptualization. And in order to reconstruct that broader field of conceptualization, we have to pay attention to uh, not only failures, but also kind of eccentrics who just in the quiet of their own you know patent documents conceptualize entirely alternate pathways that although they might have never been taken alert us to the wider diversity of thought that surrounded the issue of chinese information technology we cannot rule out the stuff that loses because if we do we will get a highly distorted understanding or view of this already highly distorted Chapter in the history of global information.
0: Thank you. That was so um, fascinating, and in fact, I really enjoyed reading the the story. The um, fight so for supremacy, really, between these two um, of Chinese students who study overseas, Qi Xuan, whom you've already mentioned, um, and Zhou Hu Kun, whose um, common usage approach to the Chinese typewriter, in fact, as you already said, um, was then eventually um, mass manufactured and became the more or less one standard um, Chinese typewriter. And just as
1: a, just, I mean, a simple point on that, I'm sorry to, but the, you know, this, this gentleman, Qi Xuan. if you, if you look at, um, if you look at some of the existing scholarship on Chinese information technology, I mean, historians didn't, and, and, and non-historians didn't even know his name. Um, you know, he was such an obscure figure that when he shows up, uh, he tends to show up in the highly, uh, Garbled kind of improvised romanization systems of the early 20th century, basically because when he shows up in in Western publications, uh, the editors of those newspapers are just, in in many ways, making up whatever kind of romanization system they want to to explain his name, and uh, and that's how his name is showing up in the work of some pretty prominent people, and it's you know as 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 historians we need to. We need to ask more of ourselves than that. We need to, at the very least, know the names of our of our figures, um, and it takes time, and it takes archival practice, and it takes you know the desire to get to much to a much deeper level than than simply a, a, a good story. We owe it to uh, to our professions and to ultimately to historical subjects to, at the very least, try our best to to reconstruct the complexity and ambiguity of, of, of their lives. Um, and that starts with, you know, at least knowing their names and knowing that they existed. So it's, it's something that I'm really passionate about that I don't think we talk about nearly enough.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, that is indeed very true. So thank you for, um, really elaborating on, uh, Qichuan's attempt. Um, and then also in chapter three, um, you tell the story of Zhou Hokun, as I already said. Um, I think we can move on to chapter four here, um, which is really um, dedicated to the implementation, I think, of Zhou Hokun's typewriter by commercial press in Shanghai, um, and then also its distribution throughout many different sectors, be it governmental, educational, financial, or private. And here you make an interesting point, which um, I'm sure many of our listeners interested in gender studies will, in fact, find very compelling, which is um, that even though there are um, very many male typists, as well as female ones, way more than in Western Europe, America or Japan, in fact, the image of the Chinese typist joined the ranks of promoting and stylizing the work as distinctly women's works so feminine work. Could you tell us um, more about this? And here I quote you, moment in global history where clerical work was undergoing a process of feminization worldwide. This is on page 117.
1: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for this question. This is, um, so this, this chapter, and I'll, I'll focus on the question of gender. Uh, this chapter was in essence, uh, an attempt to, on the one hand, reconstruct the the, live, the lived history of of the Chinese typewriter, not as a not as a patent document, not as a set of ideas, but as an an actually living and mass manufactured and circulated and you know used commodity <clears throat> in its in its uh, um, in its in its own environment. So on the one hand, it you know I think it could be uh, characterized, but I'm going to qualify this in a second as an attempt to tell the history of the Chinese typewriter, quote unquote, on its own terms. The reason I say I'm going to qualify that is because on the other hand, it's. I think the point of the chapter is to say that there is no such thing as the history of the Chinese typewriter on its own terms, um, to the extent that what we mean by on its own terms is, is a kind of autonomous interpretive space in which... Its meaning can be its meaning was made, and and for us, its meaning can be interpreted. And the reason uh, and gender is a great way to, um, to 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 focus on this, but there are other examples as well. So, in if you were to pick up a Chinese newspaper in the late twenties and thirties and read an article about Chinese typists, and there were there there are quite a few. There were uh, there were typing schools popping up. Over all metropolitan metropolitan areas in China, Chinese typists were taking up positions in in government, in banks, in trading companies, um, in universities, consulates, embassies, and so forth. And If you were to read about Chinese typists, you would be left with the impression that all Chinese typists were women. And that, uh, and that there was such a thing as the, the, the typewriter girl, the da uh and that, that in essence, that China was buying into lock, stock, and barrel the global image of the typist or clerical worker as a young, attractive female, the, the, the flower of the office, and so forth, and all of these various um, images and stereotypes. That are that are that are taking shape globally, and you would also assume if you just looked at these Chinese language newspaper uh, representations of, of typing that the 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 industry was basically entirely feminized along to the same extent as the United States and and other parts of the world. Now, uh, when you go into the archives of the schools and basically. Uh, I compiled uh, the the names and demographic backgrounds of I think somewhere in the order of four or five thousand students that went through these Chinese typing schools in the twenties and thirties and forties and into the early fifties. and what you see from these statistics is a very different picture of the labor force that made up this this new this entirely new labor force of the Chinese of Chinese typewriting circles. It is a labor force that is uh, majority female, majority young women, but where the breakdown is something along the lines of not 90, 100, 100, zero, but more along the lines of 70%, 30%, 60%, 40%. Meaning there is a sizable population with or a sizable subset of the typing labor population throughout this period that are young Chinese men, roughly of the same level of education and the same age group as their uh, women counterparts, and uh, and so this is a puzzle. This is a puzzle for the historian. Like, why is it that we have this this brute force reality of how this industry is actually composed, and then we have a really cut and dry, really straightforward representation of this industry? In Chinese language um, newspaper articles and representations, and the way that I the way that I argue or the way that I interpret this is that we cannot explain that contradiction without uh, taking account to the fa- of the fact that Chinese typewriting as as an industry as a kind of a set of assumptions and a set of discourses and a set of cliches and tropes. Was never its own autarkic, autonomous, uh, independent state that was separate from typewriting globally. It was ensphered, it was nested in a much larger global discourse and set of imageries of typewriting that are dominated by uh, the very kind of Remington monoculture that I describe in chapter one. And in fact, it, this monoculture is. Is spawning itself. It's becoming much, much more robust in a variety of ways, but that that stuff doesn't go away. Um, and so the 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 what I end up arguing is that the reason that uh, there can be no such thing as a Chinese typewriter boy, and by that I don't literally mean a young man sitting at a type uh, Chinese typewriter typing and receiving a paycheck for it. There are there are such individuals. But the reason that there cannot be a kind of trope around that is because there is quite literally no vocabulary, no symbology, no kind of aesthetic framework anywhere in the world for such a uh, for such a trope to exist. There there is no such thing within the global typewriting culture of a typewriter boy, of a young handsome whatever we however we want to imagine it, um, and so. We have Chinese typewriting as a world, both living quote unquote its own life in a variety of ways, but also at all times in contact with uh, embroiled with and sphered within a global typewriting culture that has its own set of aesthetic and discursive and um, uh, uh, paradigms. And one of them, and probably one of the most powerful ones, is the typewriter girl, the so-called typewriter girl. And so China has one of those uh, as well, in in terms of a cliche and a trope. Uh, and yet at the same time, there is this this hidden uh, kind of figure within the story, for which there is no ready to go, ready to wear cliche in order to surface him um, in any kind of discursive way. Now, and I and I make the point in in some kind of alternate reality. Sure, if China or the Chinese typewriting industry. Had been sufficiently interested and invested in creating such a trope, I don't know why they would have wanted to do that. But if they had wanted to, maybe they could have invented uh, a trope that only existed in China and nowhere else. But if you really sit down and think about it, there is no motivating factor for doing that. Um, and so that's I try to. Uh, that's why the the chapter is called. You know, what do you call a typewriter with no keys? Um, Chinese typewriter is a typewriter that has no keys. It has no keyboard. It is a typewriter, and yet by this point in the twenties, and it, it lives a life. It's mass manufactured. It's got typing schools. It has professions surrounding it. It has its own physical somatic training regimen. Um, it's it's a it's it's a it, it's an object of some reputation and some. Pride, which is the reason why it's featured in the China Pavilion at the Philadelphia World's Fair. It, it, it is all of these things. And, and yet at the same time, it is also not a typewriter because there is no such thing in the global imagination as a typewriter with no key. So it's kind of it's kind of vibrating or oscillating nervously between existence and, and non-existence, presence and absence, reality and unreality. Uh, because it, it, it both exists, but it doesn't fit in into any of the discursive, any of the imagistic, any of the uh, conceptual models that have now spread entirely around the world. Um, and I think the gender story of the missing typewriter boy, boy or the existent, non-existent typewriter boy is a really um, uh, clear case of that.
0: Absolutely. Um, This is also super interesting for a follow-up question I'd like to ask you, um, which is something you get into more um, a few pages later in in the same chapter. And you really make a vital point about the somatic dimensions of modern Chinese linguistic technologies, which you've already mentioned before as well. A topic that um, we will return to, I hope, in our discussion later on as as you also returned to this theme time and again throughout the book. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us about what the Chinese typewriter um, really encompassed on a more physical, on corporeal level for the Chinese
1: Yes. So this is, I'm glad you asked that, because this is one of the parts of the books that the book that it's kind of a personal favorite. And, um, you know, it's just something that I hope, uh, I hope, captures people's imaginations or attention in a way. But of course, as the author, you can never, you know, you have no control over that. But um, so I try to make the point in the book that uh, that the typewriter, whether the Western typewriter, or the Chinese typewriter, uh, is is so much more than simply a business appliance. I mean, it it is by definition an object that you use in order to, you know compose some sort of text character grapheme by grapheme by grapheme through some mecha- mechanical means like that's that's the sort of baseline definition of what it is but it's also it's also uh tied up with uh, in our just in our discussion just now of ideas of gender and ideas of beauty and ideas of the office place and ideas of the modern office place and uh it's uh it was used um typewriters have been used as musical instruments in orchestral symphonies uh their course the object of collection and obsession and nostalgia and uh there are all sorts of things and one of the things that uh the typewriters typewriters are as any technological object is are a set of relationships and disciplines and regimens for the human body Uh, the bodies of those people who sit down to use them. So just to give you an example closer to home with the alphabetic typewriter, one of the dominant mm, paradigms for imagining what typing is or what it most resembles comes from music, from piano playing. Uh, The idea that there is something comparable to the body posture, to the posture of the hands, to the, you know, the set of actions between playing the piano and typing—you're uh, you're you're not supposed to look at the keys. Uh, you're supposed to have a certain kind of um, uh, uh, sort of you know relaxed but also stable uh, body posture. Your wrists are supposed to stay kind of not too fixed but not too loose. All these sorts of images and and they uh, if you if you delve into the archives um, and the published materials of Western typewriter training manuals and other things, you will find uh, etude in, in many cases. In, in the same way that you sit down a kid in front of a piano and you have them play little little snippets of melodic sequences in order to get them practicing, you'll have these little uh, alpha alphabetic sequences in order to get certain kinds of patterns in the fingers kind of into muscle memory. So there is all of these images that are in that that feed into. Uh, the broader history of the alphabetic typewriter. And also the idea that uh, that, is, that is very, very common, especially in the first half of the 20th century, that a woman who has some background playing piano would make a wonderful, it's a wonderful crossover skill to the realm of typing. So all of these images. Well, the simple point, point of the, that section of the chapter is that none of these somatic paradigms have any bearing or any relationship with Chinese typing, but instead there's a whole other set of somatic paradigms um, and kinds of regimes of discipline and the creation of muscle memory that are at play in all of these different typing schools that are popping up in Chongqing and in Beijing and Shanghai and elsewhere. And so I try to delve into you know, what these somatic regimes are to the best of my ability, because it's it's very challenging to reconstruct. Histories of the body from material objects, from documentary and archival sources, but it's something that I think we as historians have to be willing to try to do, even if even if it's uh, in, inherently going to be partial. Um, and so, in one of the in one of the extended studies, um, which is one of the, my favorite images in the book, I show the pathways of the first, I think it's twenty characters. In the very first lesson of a Republican era Chinese typing manual. So basically, the first drill that a typing student on lesson one was asked to complete. And so the first character was. At such and such position on the tray bed of the common usage typewriter, I meant again. There's no keys. There are no keyboard. It's a rectangular matrix of a typewriter. So the first character is in this particular x y position. The second one is here. The third one is here. The fourth one is here. And to actually map out what is going on spatially and somatically as that typist moves through that drill and uh i I can't really go into it here. It's much easier to understand in the book because of the imagery of it, but there's a a very different kind of process at play. It's very clear that at least for the editors of this particular typing manual, their goal was something like uh something like walking the tray bed into existence basically by 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 walking the the you know, the by familiarizing the typist with certain regions on the tray bed, that uh, the person was going to become aware of the of the locations of certain very common usage Chinese characters. But then steadily, uh, we the 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 editors of this manual wanted to introduce certain let lower frequency characters which were maybe along the periphery of the machine so we would sort of rush out to the side and then come back to the center and rush out to the side again and then stay in the center for maybe two or three characters it's it's hard to explain but there is clearly a a machine specific and a writing system specific bodily regime a training regimen which was at play um, in, in, the, in the world of Chinese typewriting, and, and not just one. There were many different of these regimes and many different of these somatic styles, and none of them were about playing piano, and none of them were about uh, you know, conceptualized in this way of a musical instrument. So again, you know, this, is, this is one of the first forays into modern Chinese information technology, and I think that it's important beyond the bits and bytes of it all and the design of the machine to try our best to reconstruct these physical and somatic complexes that were also alive and well. In the same way that if we were studying at 100 years from now, we would want someone to do an historical reconstruction of the swipe, you know, this physical motion that we are now so used to, it's second nature, but the swipe of the iPhone, the swipe of the iPad, as a new way to touch an object, a new way to interact with an object that emerged at a particular place in time. Uh, it, it has a particular set of kinds of bodily logics. It is a very different set of logics than earlier forms of touching objects and interacting with them. Uh, and Those are the kinds of things that we know really well and people write about to a fair degree in the in the realm of alphabetic information technologies. But what are all of these these, these regimes of touch in modern Chinese information technology uh, and global information technology more broadly. That's what that, that's what that section is, is trying to be one of the first forays into.
0: And I think it's, it's doing that really um, beautifully and, and successfully. Um, and I could talk about this all day, really, because it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and actually, I'm wondering, to what extent did um, – did your own collection of typewriters might have helped you um, in in this attempt to to sort of reconstruct the the um, the embodied experience typists would have um, when typing away on a Chinese typewriter? Did that help you at all?
1: It it did, and and then tragically it didn't. I mean, I've I have I have. Um, as you alluded to before, over the course of these ten years, I truly accidentally ended up uh, assembling the largest collection of Chinese typewriters uh, in the world, and also Japanese typewriters and Chinese and Japanese word processors and computers. Uh, and and it, it I didn't set out to do so, and I had no intention of of doing it, but of doing that. But it sort of kind of occurred along the way, and um, and I think as you're. As you're uh, inferring, you know, one of the things that occurred to me early on would be, you know, how how great would it be, and how eye-opening would it be to try to do a kind of machine ethnography to to learn to the best of my ability how to type on a typewriter, on a Chinese typewriter, and to be able to ask certain questions that occur along the way as I undergo this process. Um, What prevented that in a physical sense? I, I feel like I've I. I did my best to, to to pursue that kind of line of inquiry um, in a archival material objects uh, kind of analytical fashion. But to do it in an ethnographic way was foiled by the very basic fact and kind of tragic fact is that most of the machines um, that survive, and most of the sh- machines, the Chinese typewriters, in my collection, with one exception, uh, are beyond repair they are kind of they're in retirement they were rusting in the basements of churches and universities and um they in theory they could be restored to their prior glory and maybe used again but i think my decision has been to let them enjoy retirement um as you know as these as these aged objects uh but very few Chinese typewriters that I encountered, either my own collection or the dozens and dozens that I encountered in other people's collections, almost none of them were functioning. Uh, there was one exception, a machine in London, which I had the delight to see in action by the typist who uh, retired now, but who had used it in her work um, when she was still working. And then most recently in a in a, the newest addition to my collection, which was really thrilling, which was a... Uh, a typewriter that I actually that was completely unopened, that I opened for the first time. It was manufactured in 1991, I want to say. I'd have to check the date. but I actually opened the crate and unpacked all the packing and looked at the I mean the, what's the original light bulb for the, for the the part that you attach to the top that hangs over the machine to light it up so you can see what you're doing a little bit better. The original light bulb was still in the box. And I created a, a kind of QuickTime video of me assembling it. That machine, which is now on view at San Francisco International Airport Museum, that is actually a functioning typewriter, and it and it it it's the ball bearings on it are still greased. I mean, it's it's exquisite. And so, once that machine comes back home after the show at SFO Airport is over, um, I might give it another shot to think about, you know, what is it to try to. What is it to try to to ask questions when you are engaged in the practice of something which I am a very very big advocate of I think that I think that that is we do not use our full bodies nearly enough when trying to come up with questions and that's a shame because questions don't just come out of our brains and they don't just come they're not just inspired by things traveling through our you know our visual cortex or through our through our Through our ears, they they come through touch and movement and kinetics and sensation, Um, and uh, in in far too far too often we rule out everything from the neck down when we try to come up with the questions. Not not the answers. That's not that's not the important part. But the questions that we're asking. Uh, If we were to involve more of our body into the process of asking questions, I'm convinced that all of us would be asking. Better questions. Um, And so I think probably I'll have another shot at it with the second book, with the Chinese computer, because, you know, there are, I really do want to sit down and I have the capacity in this case to sit down and do, in essence, machinic uh, ethnographies of different Chinese input systems and programming languages um, and input surfaces. Again, not to become a master at it so I can say this is the answer, but rather to give to give my mind a fighting chance of, ha- of asking better questions by involving my entire body in, in that question-raising uh, process.
0: I'm really looking forward to it already, to the second book, um, which we'll talk about in a minute as well. Um, and I thought it was really beautiful how you described this sort of uh, four e cognition, which is um, not just the body and mind are interacting, but also, in fact, the humans and the machines. And this is really um, a point you make in the fifth chapter um, by by way of um, talking about um, how you acquired this typewriter from um, in London. And and this deeply personal and individualized relationship between the typist and the typewriter, i.e. the humans and the machines. And again, this is, um, I think, a topic that you keep on coming back to in the book um, and we can talk about um, a bit more later on. But there's also another really... um, Equally fascinating, really, topic that emerges in the fifth chapter, which is the Japanese, uh, which come on stage, so to speak, at the beginning of the anti Japanese war and their hugely significant impact on the development and uh, distribution of Chinese typewriters in the 1930s and thereafter. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit more about the Japanese um, and maybe frame this through the story of the of the athlete, come entrepreneur, you Bin T.
1: Sure, I'd love to. Um, so, really, Chapter Five is trying to. Uh, I, I didn't set out to do this, but once once it had really become overwhelmingly clear, I think the mission of Chapter Five began became, became quite simply to politicize a term that, in computing circles, is very kind of neutral and commonplace, which is uh, CJK. CJK computing CJK information and that stands for Chinese Japanese Korean as a kind of subset of the broader set of whether it's text encoding or or graphics or font production or um, you know uh, a variety of other things but that this this CJK environment the idea of that was born uh, really out of the the uh, the experience of twentieth century warfare and empire, Japanese imperialism, most notably the second the second uh, Sino Japanese War, the Second World War. But you could you could you could extend this further back into the twentieth century, and the central premise of it is that Japan in this whole history mm-hmm. occupies a really uh, uh, fascinating and kind of complex position in this history. On the one hand. It has one foot in the global typewriting camp. Um, there are typewriters for uh, Japanese, which are designed and sold by Remington and Olivetti and Underwood, and um, and you know Japan is a full participant in this global discourse of the typewriter in the way that we expect the typewriter to behave with a keyboard and keys. But of course, those typewriters are. Kana typewriters, whether Hiragana or Katakana, uh, the subset of the Japanese writing system that is uh, phonetic. Japan also has a foot in the Chinese typewriter part of this story, as a uh, and that is in the Kanji realm. These are, so Kanji Japanese typewriters also exist and are also being developed around this time, and are facing many of the same engineering and linguistic challenges as uh, those I described for. Um, for Chinese typewriting, and are also like the Chinese typewriter, kind of on the outside looking in. They, they might not always be uh, targeted or invoked in these denigrating cartoons about Chinese typewriters, but there's a guilt by association. Um, there's a sort of a, a, a guilt by association that spreads across the broader Chinese character sphere, the kanji sphere which has implications for not just China, but for Japan and kanji, and also for Korean and uh, hanja, the, the subset of the Korean writing system that is also based upon uh, Chinese character writing. So there's a kind of uh, implication of, of other non-Chinese actors in this story of the so-called Chinese puzzle. And so the, with, with the, the way that this chapter unfolds, it's both a, a brief uh, but necessarily uh, less elaborate history of Japanese typewriting. And I would urge everyone to keep their eyes out for the work by Raja Adal, who I know is working you know, expressly on the history of Japanese typewriting. Uh, so it's not by any means meant to be a definitive word on it. But the sort of a brief history of this complex braided kana kanji history of Japanese typewriting, but much more importantly for my purposes is the goal or impetus of japanese engineers from a very very early date prior to the, before the war to build their machines for japanese writing but with an eye towards the much bigger and more lucrative market of chinese i.e. if we can build a a kanji typewriter for japanese we will have by definition also made a typewriter that is able to handle chinese chinese characters and um, and for that matter, we will have also built a machine that is capable of handling Korean, uh, for at least for the Hanja portion of of the writing system, and and you see this among Japanese inventors in the teens and twenties. You see it among Chinese inventors in the teens and twenties, and you see it among uh, non-Asian uh, European American inventors who are beginning to try to lump together. CJK China Japan Korea into a single enterprise or a goal where the solution of any one of these gives you the solution of all of them and the reason that we need a solution to all of them is because they're all implicated in the same puzzle and that CJK this isn't the word that's used at the time but that CJK is a shared problem um, and uh, in essence the as the as history unfolds in the in you know the really most aggressive and then violent species of Japanese imperialism of the late twenties and thirties. And of course, into the war itself, uh, is a period of time in which, uh, for a good decade and a half, the dominant, the leading manufacturer of Chinese typewriters is a Japanese company. And, um, so, you know, if we kind of take this, if we take a step back and we look at this, uh, at almost the very moment when the solution to chinese uh typewriting has been solved when the puzzle has been solved excuse me you know after decades and decades of inventors and thinkers and linguists and entrepreneurs and foreigners trying to imagine how this might happen and what are the consequences if we cannot build one of these machines and now we have and look at it it's in, it's being featured in the philadelphia world's fair this is an icon of of modernity, and that almost at that very moment or just a few blinks later, this entire industry is controlled by a foreign country. Uh, and The kind of, well, humiliation or shame or anger that that uh, entails and is is later expressed um, um, after the war when the People's Republic of China will try to wrest control back of this industry to, to Chinese hands. Uh but I also talk about these these figures, and you brought up T, and I think he's a really good example who were trying to uh, navigate uh these these channels of complicity and resistance uh in what was arguably an absolutely impossible place to be um, in a condition of occupation and uh what what T does what I talk about in the book is that as these Japanese manufacturers are making further and further inroads into the Chinese uh, typewriting world uh, through these kanji machines that then are retrofitted to be uh, Chinese uh, typewriters, that he, in essence, copycats one of these Japanese machines. He adjusts it in a very, very slight way and then repatents it as the UBINTY Chinese typewriter and uses it to try to go head to head with these Japanese manufacturers and this gets him into a fair degree of trouble as I go into in the book when uh, his own competitors um, uh, his own competitors in China and others who are suspicious of his activities begin to call him out and suggest that he might be purchasing Japanese goods during the period of boycott that he might be Uh, you know, sort of sourcing his materials from Japan, a lot of things that, that caused him a lot of, uh, and, and his family, a lot of anguish that he had to defend himself that, you know, this is an entirely a 100% Chinese good, uh, and he had to make a lot of urgent claims to shore up his own, uh, bona fides as a, as a patriot. And, um, so there's this, but, but we know at least everything in the archive suggests that he really is in essence, uh, uh, carbon or sorry, copycatting and competing with these machines. So he's creating a Chinese, Japanese, Chinese typewriter uh, in this very complex way. And then fast forwarding to the post-war period. Uh, in essence, after after uh, complete surrender by Japan, after the begin, you know the 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 outcomes of the Chinese Civil War, the Revolution of nineteen forty nine, the establishment of the PRC government. Uh, Chinese typewriting manufacturers attempt in the 1950s, very 1950-51, to begin to wrest control of the typing industry back to Chinese hands because Japanese domination continues even into the post-war period. And so, in essence, a a, a coalition of Chinese typewriting manufacturers and the PRC government team up, and their, their decision is that we need to make a kind of flagship Chinese typewriter that will be you know the typewriter of the the PRC that will then bring this the epicenter of chinese typewriting manufacturing back and in a just an amazing sort of almost comical twist of fate the technique that the this coalition chooses is to quite explicitly take a japanese a, one of the leading japanese typewriters of the era or one of the leading japanese built chinese typewriters of the era and to Copy and adjust it, and so they' basically they steal a page from Ubin and they produce in the face of this Japanese built Chinese typewriter, they themselves produce a Chinese built Japanese built Chinese typewriter and this typewriter will become known as the double pigeon machine and this is the typewriter of um, Mao era China with its signature kind of pale green color and you know it's an iconic machine. And it was explicitly based upon and patterned after, uh, and an adjusted version of a Japanese-built Chinese typewriter. So the sort of complexity of of, of competitive, you know, of competitive uh, uh, um, piracy and of of patriotic piracy is something that I try to explore in that in that chapter in particular. All with the intent to say that this term that we now have, CJK. Uh, was born in blood. It was born in warfare, and it was born in the geopolitics of uh, of the the violent geopolitics of the first half of the twentieth century.
0: As so many technological innovations, I think, throughout the twentieth century. Um, thank you for this. So before we continue with um, the double pigeon machine and in the Mao era, we we're moving on to chapter six, in which. Um, which was really eye-opening for me and in which you really introduce uh, my personal favorite character and typewriter of the whole book. This is kind of a um, side story, if you will, a bittersweet story of no other than Lin, uh, Lin Yutang, um, who who invents the Ming Kui typewriter, um, which eventually never really gets mass-produced. And yet you make an incredibly important point Um about how this machine marked, really the transformation of Chinese information technology, and I would love you to talk about this a little bit more, if you will.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I, I just want to come out right and come out and say it. Uh, Lin Yutang uh, and the Mingkwai machine, for me, is as pivotal of a moment in the history of information technology uh, broadly writ. As the invention of paper, uh, the as the invention of calligraphy, as the invention of movable type, it is, it is something that marks the formation of an epoch that we are only now in the very early years and decades of, and that we have only started to try to conceptualize and make sense of. It is... Um, it gives rise Lin Yutang's work and this prototype machine from 1947, but one that dates back to the really his work in the 19 teens and 20s. Uh, is that important of a machine? And so I'm really happy to have the chance to to talk about it more. I mean, in a nutshell, the uh, the Minghui typewriter debuts uh, in the uh, the end of the 1940s, 1947 in particular and uh it's not it's not the first chinese typewriter uh by by a long stretch i mean the the machines that we've been discussing have now been around for decades um but it does lay claim to one very important first in the history of chinese typing and that is that it is the first chinese typewriter to possess a keyboard and so I've, i you know i've probably emphasized this too much but the idea that a typewriter is something that needs to have a keyboard, that a keyboard must exist, is still incredibly powerful at this point. And this is the first moment in which the global viewing audience, for lack of a better word, is finally seeing what it expects to see, a machine, a typewriter that has these this, this keyboard-based system. Now, At the very moment, however, that Lin Yutang, in essence, had given the world what it demanded and what it assumed to be fundamental, he had entirely foiled those fundaments. He had entirely short-circuited and subverted everything that we think we know about how this machine would work. So if you were in 1947 at one of these demonstrations that he gave, and you sat down at this machine and you pushed a button on, on the device... You would hear gears moving inside the machine, but nothing would appear on the page. And so you might think it's broken. I mean, the way a keyboard-based typewriter is supposed to work is that what I type is what I get. If I depress the button that has the symbol for Y on it, I expect the lowercase y to appear on the screen. That's just the way it works, right? So you, if you were at this machine and you would be expected it be, to behave in that way, as what you type is what you get, you would be confused from, from the outset. When you push the second button on this device to press the second key on it, you would also hear gears moving inside the chassis of the machine again. But once again, nothing would appear on the page. So now it, you might think it's broken. Uh, but at this point, something would have happened. In the top part of the chassis of the machine, there was a small uh, window which Lin Yutong referred to as the his magic eye and in the this magic eye as he called it after the depression of the first two keys you as the user would see the following you would see up to 8 chinese characters appear in that window and then with your final keystroke you would depress one of the 8 Keys along the bottom bank of the keyboard, namely the numerals one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And if you wanted uh, in the magic eye, if you wanted the character that was in position one, you would depress the number one, or the key. The character that's in position seven, you would depress the character seven. So first depression, second depression, and then selection. What what uh, what Lin Yutang had invented was a typewriter with a keyboard that entirely subverted everything we expect uh, out of a typewriter in its behavior. This was not a machine that was, uh, again, what you type is what you get. It was not a typewriter premised first and foremost on inscription. Okay, I push a button and I expect it to be inscribed or impressed upon the paper. Instead, he had invented a machine whose primary function was character retrieval. He had invented a character retrieval system that in its final act inscribed the character so retrieved on the page. And so when you break open the machine and you look at the chassis inside, in essence, inside this machine is a metal hard drive of um, f- uh, a collection of full body Chinese characters. And then very importantly, and this is harkening back to Xuan, who we talked about you know, a while ago. Of pieces of characters, and so the way it worked is: imagine a metal bar, you know, roughly the size of a ruler, let's say, and um, the bar has eight sides, and it's you know it's kind of like the size of a of a of a of a pencil, but but maybe wider, and it's got eight sides on it, and on each of these surfaces on this octagonal metal bar there were Chinese characters or pieces of Chinese characters. Okay, now you take six of these pencil-shaped metal bars and you bundle them together and you place them on a spool uh, and the spool can rotate. It's on a rotating axis. And then you take six of these spools onto of, of these bundles and you put them on a uh, their own spool, which rotates itself, and you kind of have this carousel thing you know at the end of the day you've got you've got a carousel inside a carousel inside a carousel so it's it's this highly complex rotating set of metal bars with Chinese characters on them. This is living inside the chassis of the machine and out of sight of the typist the typist doesn't look directly at this it's inside the chassis. instead the typist is using the keyboard in order basically, and I'm kind of anthropomorphizing the machine here, but that's purely for the purposes of description. By pushing a particular symbol on a key, you are not telling the machine, all right, machine, produce this symbol on the paper. What I type is what I get. Instead, you're telling the machine, all right, machine, in your metal hard drive, retrieve for me all of the characters in which this particular piece shows up. Uh, because on 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 the on the keyboard of the of the Ming-Kwai typewriter, the symbols on these on the keyboard were not about the sound of Chinese characters or their phonetic values. They were about the structural shapes of them. So you push one button, and basically you're telling the machine, "Okay, uh, I don't want all of your characters. Just give me the ones that have this piece in it." And it kind of moves and turns and brings those into the printing position. But that's too many. So then I'm going to push one more button. And say, okay, machine, out of the characters that you just retrieved for me, I want you to limit it further to just those that have also this piece in them. And the way that Lin Yutang designed this is that in this process of these first two keystrokes, the resulting set of hits or matches, let's say, for that active retrieval would be no more than eight, and ideally no less than eight. So eight characters would fulfill these criteria that he had provided. And then you would simply decide which ones you wanted by typing one, one through eight. So this idea of I am not pushing buttons and expecting the symbol to appear. I am using my keyboard to provide criteria to a machine, which then circles back and provides me with candidates that fulfill that criteria. And then in my final act, I confirm, I, I I do a confirmation of which of these candidates I want. Criteria, candidates, confirmation in an endless sort of cycle. This human-machine interaction, this way of interacting with machine, is not typing. And I try to make this point really clear in the book that the, at the very moment that Lin Yutong shows to the world a machine that they now recognize as a Chinese typewriter, look at this machine, it's a typewriter for Chinese and it has a keyboard, is the very moment that the typewriter and typing ceases to exist. And instead, what Lin Yutong had given to the world is what we now think of and call input or shuru, shuru fa which operates under precisely the same um, human machine interaction logic of criteria candidates confirmation. Now, of course, we don't use Lin Yutong's keyboard anymore. We don't use the symbols he used, but that doesn't matter at all. Uh, What matters about Lin Yutong's machine isn't the shape of the machine. It isn't the number of keys on his keyboard. It isn't the symbols on any one of his keys. What matters about his machine is the dynamic that he had invented. Uh, And that dynamic, which we now again talk about as input, is fundamental to every single computing and word processing system that has ever been invented for the Chinese language, with maybe one exception. Everything has been premised upon that kind of human Machine interaction and now by now uh, the one exception was from the 70s it's it's a very interesting story but not pertinent here every single system now, whether it's on your smartphone whether it's on your uh, computer, all operate using this system and that's why I try to make the claim or I do claim that uh, what that the mean is the, basically it marks a entirely new epoch in the history of information technology whose implications are not limited to China. They actually extend to the wider world and whose meaning we have only begun to um, to contemplate.
0: This is so incredible. I really love this part. So thank you very much for elaborating um, on it in, in such great detail. Um, and I could really talk about this uh, much more um, you do say this in the book and, you know, the story is so interesting, I think, um, because it's not just revolutionary, but also um, at first unsuccessful, right? This is a typewriter that's never really um, being mass produced, uh, which, as you just said, is is unimportant. Um, and yet, you know, you say in your book this um, basically, this typewriter laid the foundation for the true mechanical savior of the Chinese script in the modern period, the deus Ex Machina, that is, the personal computer.
1: Right. It's, so it's yeah. So it's it's, it's so it's um, more than the computer. So the computer doesn't save um, Chinese. What saves Chinese is input, and what I mean is uh, that. I don't I don't mean that input is the end of history, because there is no end of history um in, in in the sense that is often meant. What I mean is that input is at last the way out of to use another image from early 20th century Chinese history, of the sealed metal house that um that we find Chinese characters and Chinese script in at the beginning of our story. You know, the 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 sheer odds of this really need to be tallied i mean morse code braille punch card memory uh this is not in chronological order but graphics uh dot matrix printing print technology screen technology character encoding systems typewriters keyboards um voice recognition. i mean the the list goes on and on that you know the false universalism that we started talking about Talking about in the in the context of the Olympic Games, is seems on the face of it to be an immense. It's very very large, but it is still a sealed metal house <laughs> in which Chinese characters are. You know, do we allow them to slumber? Do we wake them up? That whole that whole question that dates back to the 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 New Culture Movement, um, and it seems absolutely impossible. There is it's it, you know the Chinese typewriter itself is not the solution. To the puzzle of Chinese more broadly, it is, it is a negotiation with this condition. It is a way to make do and make something within the context of this false universalism, but it is not a way out of this false universalism, uh, and yet out of the kinds of failures and attempts and eccentricities and certain commercial successes and, and, and in other cases, uh, entire failures that I talk about in the book, somehow, the, uh, somehow a way out of this metal house is, is created uh, in a way that absolutely no one could have anticipated at the turn of the 20th century. And so, um, you know, the second, you know, and the way I describe it in the book is the second we do not expect our keyboards or our keys or our input surfaces to behave in a what you type is what you get model, we, where, we, where we cut, where we sever the relationship of the depression of a key and what that depression is supposed to enact in the system. The second we sever that relationship, what it opens up is a de facto infinite space that did not exist just a few moments earlier, in which all different kinds of relationships with objects, and in this case, you know, human-computer, human-device interaction, become possible. And uh, and I tried, the the analogy I try to use in the book is is the difference between analog music and and uh, MIDI or musical instrument, digital interface, co- computational music, and in particular the relationship of music making and playing and then the devices that we use in order to play. So the, the way I put it in the book is uh, and a little bit a little bit elaborated here, if I were to hand you an acoustic guitar uh, and say play this guitar, you know, in essence, an acoustic guitar is both an interface. It has frets and keys, and you hold it in a certain way, and it is a it's it, it is the embodiment of its own acoustic reality. You strum that, and it's a guitar. Now you can tap it and turn it into a drum, but you know its interface and its its isness is one. Uh, if I give you a piano and it's got a keyboard and it's got keys, and you sit down in a certain way and you you know you depress the key, you strike the key. It is both an interface and its own thing. Now, if I give you a piano-shaped MIDI controller, and I say play the piano the way that you as a trained pianist know how to play a piano, that severs the relationship between the interface and the somatic regime of piano playing and the sound that's going to come out of that interaction. Because the sound that's going to come out of that interaction Could be a piano, if in my computer I set, you know, my setting to piano, but it could also be a bassoon or a clarinet. Or I could give you a clarinet-shaped MIDI controller to a trained clarinetist and say, use everything you know about this device and your training in it and the somatic regime and just the feeling you know, and play, but then I set the output to drums or to conga or something of that nature. And so there is, there still is the somatic feeling of coming back to typing. There still is the somatic feeling of the keyboard and of typing and of striking keys and of the posture of the body, and its, you know, its economical shape and space inside our laptops. But there is no relationship, no necessary relationship between that set of actions and set of training regimes and assumptions, and the stuff that will come out the other side. And I can make that relationship through, you know, in a programmatic and protocol protocol way, I can make that relationship into any number of things. So suddenly I can play the drums with the piano, I can play the piano with a bassoon, I can play the bassoon with a, you know, a a, a, a clarinet, as long as I'm operating in this MIDI, by which I mean, in this case, input framework, Uh, but if I give you a bassoon, and I say play the conga, just giving you a straight up analog instrument—that's not possible. So we have now entered into a very bizarre space in time, which is that, technically speaking, the entire world of computer users—and I'm not just talking about China—but everyone who has a laptop, a desktop, a handheld device is holding in his or her hand not an acoustic guitar or not in a not a uh, you know a grand piano. They are holding midi controllers in their hands or on their desktops. The only difference is if you give that midi controller to the alphabetics of the world, they are only willing to play the they're only willing to play the instrument that that instrument looks like. You give them a midi piano, they are willing to play the piano with it. You give them a the midi bassoon, they're willing to play the bassoon. There are other computer users, media users on this planet. China is the biggest number of them but there are others in this world who when you give them the midi the the midi QWERTY keyboard have uh have programmed into them out of I think of this 2 century history of of this the metal house analogy have a willingness to say okay this thing looks like a piano but I can play the drums with it and that's the that's the the weird inversion I think that's undertaking right now, maybe not an inversion, but something is transforming in the history of global information technology. Um, And yet on the surface of it, and this is, this is why I think the moment in 1947 is so powerful on the surface of it. It looks as if it's all the same and it looks quote unquote, just like us, just like the real thing. And yet something radical has shifted underneath it. Um, and so that's i think where we get to the idea of what is the nature of this change and i would go so far as to say it's not it's certainly not the computer that saved chinese and i wouldn't say it's chinese that saved the computer but it is input that is saving the computer and input that is opening up new pathways that simply cannot exist when we assume that depression equals impression, what I type is what I get, and that's something that the implications of the Ming Kui and of Lin Yutang's work is we will we will still be figuring it out. I'm I'm convinced in a century, in two centuries, it's that big of a deal.
0: Thank you very much, Tom, for clarifying this, and sorry if I um, sort of misrepresented just now. Oh no 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 it's a, no! It's I Um, I think you know if if this. Um, input method that was really invented at this um, crucial point in time wasn't enough, you go on to make another point, what what you call a second pillar of modern Chinese information technology that is developed on a really local level in the Mao era. And I would love you to talk about um, in Chapter 7, which uh, you wittingly call the Typing Rebellion, I I would love you to talk um a little bit more about how some creative individuals again as I said on a local level came to experiment um with uh, basically predictive text strategies and also how the communist party reacted to these user-led taxonomic taxonomic changes.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um no, this is uh this is this is an important chapter in the history I think because you know the story. It's it's not as if when Lin Yutang develops the Ming Kui in forty seven that that all of the history that we have been discussing simply evaporates or goes away or is is superseded. Uh, the world of Chinese typewriting continues. It continues to transmute and and offer up its own really uh, eccentric and strange possibilities. Um, and one of them. Is this uh, ground-up, user-led kind of change that you talk about, and that I discuss in chapter seven, which takes us back to the traybed Chinese typewriter, um, and in a nutshell, the you know the by virtue of the fact that the Chinese typewriter is transformable. You you know the common usage Chinese typewriter, and this is something I go, go to in the book. I won't belabor it here. Is one that the user is not just able to or encouraged to, but really required to customize uh, for his or her own workplace, um, mixed with the Mao-era encouragement of so-called proletarian or 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 local level innovation and, and 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 the willingness to think best kinds of cognitive paradigms of previous culture, uh, combined with a third factor of the just Kind of repetitive and rote and often cliched nature of Mao era political speech. In essence, uh, uh, at the local level, a set of compositors, typesetters, and typists begin to ask their own kind of question, which which is pretty phenomenal, which is, I think, goes something like this: um, If I find myself in my work at the People's Daily or elsewhere typing, if I find myself constantly producing certain kinds of phrases, resist America, support Korea, or uh, words like socialism or patriotism, whatever the terms might be, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, whatever it might be, why is it that I feel satisfied to leave my typewriter tray bed Organized according to the out of the box dictionary like setting, which has no relationship to how language actually functions or works. Um, and elsewhere, I've said, you know, the dictionary for the English language places aardvark and apple together, not because they have anything to do with each other, but just because they start with the letter A. Um, and in essence, uh, in different pockets at the local level, um, by largely unnamed, and in some cases, people who, whose name we know, began to dump out all 2,450 characters on their machine and rebuild them from scratch, placing characters to the best, throwing the dictionary organization away and trying the best of their ability to get as many characters as close together as possible that tended to go together in actual speech. So if I empty my tray bed and I put down the character Mao of Mao Zedong, my goal would be to pick up the character Z and place it right next to Mao and to take the character Dong and place it right next to Z, And then... To take up the, the two characters for chairman, Zhu Xi, and place them as close as I could to Mao so that I could type Mao Zhu Xi, Chairman Mao, or Mao Zedong, and then to start to build up these clusters of natural language arrangements. Um, and In essence, uh, I call it the second vernacular movement of modern China. The first one is the one we talk about, the Bai Hua movement, which was, let's, let's write the way we speak. Well, this was the second vernacular movement, which is, let's categorize the way we speak and write, uh, which is a really major, again, a major sort of departure from, I would say, every categorical system that has ever existed in the course of the history of the Chinese language. It's that extreme of a departure. uh, And one that, again, once you set down this path, has an almost limitless set of possibilities, uh, by which I mean that if you dump out all 2,450 characters and then you start over, well, you have 2,450 times, 2,449 times, 2,448 times, dot, 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 times one. So 2,450 factorial possibilities for how to arrange that tray bed. If a person tried to build every one of those kinds of tray beds, uh, the universe would die before the person finished or before humanity ever Exhausted all of these possibilities, so there are these moments when, when someone like Lin Yutang or someone like one of these one of these many typists and typesetters just simply in their own minds turns off a switch, turns off a switch that says something must be a certain way, and in turning off that switch, suddenly opens up a, a near infinite region of entirely new possibilities where. People are going to enter in and do, compete with each other and do it in lots of different ways, but, but, uh, um, and maybe the person who invented it won't even build the best version of whatever it is that is entering this new space, but that doesn't matter. It's the creation of these spaces that um, out of these eccentric and really kind of, and again, radical acts that are so fascinating. And in this case, it was a huge success. Um, predictive text tray beds sweep uh, the typing industry they eventually completely displace um, the manufacturer's preference for a kind of dictionary-based organization. Um, And when we get get into the realm of computation and word processing, predictive text or natural language text uh, organizational systems will be incorporated into almost every successful and experimental system in the entire realm of Chinese computing. So Whereas predictive text became part of Western computing really in the 2000s, predictive text and natural language kinds of organizations have been part of Chinese word processing and computing from the beginning in the 1950s, precisely because they were copying typists. Um, And so this is a part of the, the sort of transition.
0: And yet this is not necessarily always acknowledged by historians of technology and modern information technology. Would that be fair to say?
1: I think so, I think so. I think that it it isn't um it isn't commonplace or expected that historians of modern information technology would find some of the most um, eccentric and kind of bleeding edge kind of thinking uh, coming out of mid century and even second half of the 20th century, China. I think we've almost been programmed to to always go looking for our questions in the Western European, United States, and certainly alphabetic context. And uh, and I think what I th- I think that what we're going to be seeing more and more of within within scholarship, uh, but also within various uh, new media information technology industries I think that we're going to see more and more people venture into histories of Arabic computing like Ramzi Nasser or histories of uh, of South Asian script new media or of of new media in 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 parts of Africa for African languages I think that I think that certainly scholarship, but even within the industry, are people are going to venture forth into this, into this realm to, as a place to ask questions that simply don't occur when you narrow the boundaries of your archive, of, of your empirical world to the Latin alphabetic or to broader alphabetic worlds. Um, and I mean, I could just give an example. This is not in the first book, in, in, in the book we're discussing, but in the, the book that I'm writing right now is a sequel. On the Chinese computer, the, the technology of auto-completion, where you're you know you're starting to type out a word on your keyboard and the uh, algorithms are, are attempting to take each keystroke in each sequence of letters that you are feeding it and compare it against a dictionary of words and try to guess, anticipate what it is that you're on your way to typing, giving you suggestions and so forth. That. In in the in the Latin alphabetic world of computing and new media, that is an incredibly recent part of our experience of computing, and you know it's really a kind of late '90s, uh, uh, maybe even early two thousands kind of phenomena. Of course, the technology existed before that, but as part of our everyday experience, it was it was relatively recently in the history of Latin alphabetic computing and word processing, auto completion. Was part of the very first Chinese computer uh, designed at the end of the 1950s, and uh, and why is that? Is it because people thinking in and about Chinese language are are more creative or somehow more cutting edge? And the answer is no. It's that they were. There's sort of two factors here. One is they are. Collectively, I'm not just, I'm not limiting this to engineers or linguists who are uh, of Chinese national origin or uh, descent. I'm talking about a, a wide array of, of international actors who are thinking about the Chinese language. They are coming out of really a century and a half history where all of the off the shelf technologies, and we've talked about some in this interview, all of these off the shelf technologies. Uh, Game-changing technologies were all built with alphabets in mind, and so there's this constant need to try to squeeze every bit of memory, every bit of speed, every bit of space, make the most of every last resource, and think and think about how to maximize these sorts of things. So there's this constant push about how do we, you know, how do we fit these tens of thousands of characters into this framework? How do we fit? How do we speed up? How do we do these things? Uh, extended over decades and decades. And then, on the other side of it uh, so this I think pushes people to make the absolute most of the of the resources in front of them and forces them to try to think uh, across the grain about some uh, some dimensions of computing and printing and graphics and a variety of other venues that may not need to be exploited to their 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 maximum potential when we're talking about alphabetic languages. Because, of the, you know, because the technologies and the languages are so fitted to each other that we can be a little bit wasteful with memory and speed and processing and so forth. Uh, not so in Chinese computing. And the other part of this is coming back to Lin Yutang and the Ming Kui and input, the birth of input as a new form of human machine, and then ultimately human computer interaction, is that in input, once again, you're not, you are not um, using the keyboard to sound out an entire word to spell out an entire word instead you are using the keyboard and the symbols on that keyboard or you could also be using a tablet or a touchpad or a variety of other systems but you are using it to describe the the properties of the character that you are that you want the the system to retrieve from memory and so that that seems like a but it might seem like an inconsequential difference. Uh, what you type is what you get versus here's what, what I'd like you to retrieve. But there's a major difference, which is um, so this, the first Chinese computer is invented by a professor of electrical engineering at MIT, who himself spoke not a single word of Chinese. He thought of it as a, a kind of curious engineering puzzle. Um, his name was Samuel Caldwell. And he knew of Lin Yutang's uh, system. He knew of uh, input. He knew of these approaches, and uh, he he develops a system that uses a, a, a standard QWERTY style layout uh, keyboard. Uh, but he, on top of each of the keys, uh, when you when you see pictures of this device, there are not letters of the alphabet, but rather strokes. Uh, so you know the heng and shu and and various other kinds of strokes uh, from Basically, from classic texts on on uh, calligraphy and ideas of you know how many fundamental strokes are there and what are their shapes and so forth, and uh, and so what someone would sit down at his machine, and um, you know if there was a particular character they wanted, they would begin to to type out the strokes that make that character up in the appropriate stroke order. Now, what they were not doing, however, was. Uh, spelling out these characters stroke by stroke. As the person typed, it's not as if the strokes appeared on a screen and then the character started to form. Very simply, all you were really doing was telling the machine, okay, go go into your memory and I want you to find all the characters that begin with this stroke. and Then I want you to reduce that total set of candidates to those who have this second stroke and this third stroke and this fourth stroke. Uh, and uh, and basically, it was a retrieval mechanism. Now, what Caldwell discovered in the late 1950s—this is incredible—and he had he had a lot of help. Uh, he he collaborated with professors of Chinese language at, at uh, Columbia University and, and elsewhere. But what he discovered along the way was, you know, um, a Chinese character that might have that might have twenty-one strokes in it if you were to compose it by hand or by brush. Uh, you don't need to give the computer all 21 strokes before the computer says, I'm done. I already know which one you want. There is no other possible character you could be looking for that has that stroke, those strokes as number one, two, three, four, five, six, let's say. And he he started to uh, notice that for almost all of the characters in his database, there were two different, he called them spellings. I love it, but he called them spellings. There are two different spellings of the character. One was the complete spelling, as if you were going to draw out the entire character by hand. But then there was this other, which was, he called it the minimum spelling. In other words, it's the minimum number of strokes you needed to enter in order for there to be an unambiguous match in the retrieval protocol. And that was called the minimum spelling. And some of these differences between full spelling and minimum spelling were 15 strokes, 20 strokes for... Uh, and so by the time you got to stroke five or six, the system would say, here you go. Here is a 21 stroke. Here is the 21 stroke or 22 stroke character that you want. You don't need to give me anything else. And we have a name for that now, and it's, of course, auto completion. Um, and auto completion is part of the very, very first Chinese computer, not because, I mean, Caldwell was brilliant, but it's not just simply because of his brilliance. Uh, it's because uh, a, they're operating. He was operating, likely Newtong allowed him to in the space of input as opposed to typing, and which is an entirely different way of relating to uh, the processing of, of 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 human language, of human text, um, and also because again, he, like so many others in this story, were 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 operating in a condition where they were desperately trying to eke every last bit of. Space, speed, efficiency—out of a, out of these various systems that were st- in which the cards were, were the the deck was so stacked against Chinese character-based writing. So they had to push these things to the limit. Could someone have invented an auto-completion word processor for English in 1959? Absolutely, no doubt. Could we have been using them from you know in the 70s and 80s and 90s? Could they be as common as 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 a as as tap water absolutely um but they're not they they remain a kind of so special part let's say of our human computer and human media interaction in the alphabetic realm um they're an optional relationship let's say in chinese they are core and uh, and um so i think there are you know predictive text auto completion and there are so many more discoveries to be found if we widen our archives, widen our set of our empirical basis. Not to exclude the alphabetic world, I'm not anti-alphabet, but we really need to globalize and universalize the history of information because it has implications, not just for the study of Chinese, of Arabic, of Devanagari, but also it has implications for the the study of the alphabet um, and of alphabetic uh, and Latin alphabetic word processing histories and computing histories I really think that we are on at the verge of a wholesale rewriting of the history of information as we know it um you know, and I think there's going to be a lot more uh scholarship and a lot more work in in the years to come, which is gonna bear this out.
0: Thank you very much um and it it really is amazing that you're um sort of doing this as one of the very first now this really leads me into my final um question um which is supposed to give our listeners not just a taste for this book but also for the for the forthcoming one the the chinese computer and i would like to ask you if you were giving advice to designers and innovators of future language related technologies as in fact i I believe you do at google and microsoft what would you tell them
1: so yeah when i when i gave a, I was really fortunate to be invited to give the um the keynote address at the Unicode Consortium annual meeting this week and that question came up you know this idea of if we were going to rebuild unicode rebuild text encoding and as the i remember as the question the, the question as it was phrased said and we didn't have any legacy issues to deal with we didn't have to worry about making things backward compatible what would you suggest what should the code look like and um i thought about it and i the way i the way i interpreted the question was you know i'm kind of being asked to offer up a different layout or maybe a different uh encoding structure for that would be more magnanimous and universal so 16 bit versus so many bit versus this many and i decided that um And I still think, I'm still working, I'm still thinking through it in many ways, Uh, but I actually think that the the answer to that question and questions like it is that we, and this is just using the example of text encoding as our kind of case study for the purposes of this question that you're raising, that we need to uh, imagine a coding system that is not designed to disappear on purpose or by design so if we think about in the alphabetic world of ascii the american standard code for information interchange or now moving forward into unicode these these absolutely critical essential they have to be there encoding schemes in which every one of the symbols in all of our human languages, need to have an address, a permanent, stable address, so that when someone depresses a key in New York or in Beirut or in, you know, in Tel Aviv or in Yokohama, that that the same thing will happen as if they were somewhere else on the world, and and that needs to be there. Uh, there needs to be a kind of deep-rooted structure to it. The problem is, is that f- for a whole set of reasons the way that the alphabetics of the world or most of the alphabetics of the world engage with code is actually not at all if if you or i are typing out an english language or a german language or a french language essay ideally if everything's going well we don't need to think about code at all you know i type the letter j the letter j appears and all of the all of that coding stuff is happening behind the scenes inside the system thanks to the great work at, of engineers in a in a variety of different locales. It's only when the system breaks down that the code and the infrastructure of that code appears in that classic uh, Lee Star um, kind of way. And when, when thinking about infrastructure, that Jeff Bowker way and uh, thinking of infrastructure, which I think is 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 right on the money. The now, but this relationship with code. Which might seem natural and straightforward is absolutely not natural or preordained or given by God. Um, and we know this because there, is, uh, there are literally billions of people on earth for whom that is not the given or even possible relationship with the realm of code. Uh, when, when a computer user sits down with a QWERTY keyboard, and wants to produce a chinese language text or a japanese language text or a korean language text and there's a variety of other examples we could talk about they don't have the privilege or the the the, the comfort of 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 forgetting that code exists that that you know we can't, i can't just press a key have that same symbol appear and then let the coding be handled by you know by the technicians i actually have to think in code now, I, if I'm using um, if I'm using an input system, I have to know how the protocols of that input system work. If I'm going to use various kinds of shortcuts, I need to understand the protocolological uh, you know rules that govern how that how the input method editor is going to interpret my keystrokes. If I'm using, and then of course there are many different types of input systems. There are there are a variety of phonetic based input systems, each with their own idiosyncrasies and then there are those that are graphical that are structure based where i'm using the keys of my keyboard to describe not the phonetic properties of chinese characters but their structural properties the you know the the features of the radicals out of which they're built or the strokes out of which they're composed and so i need to I need to stay in a state of code for that entire experience. I need to remember that the letter Y means a particular radical, or the letter R means a particular feature of a particular stroke. I don't have the privilege to just leave all that stuff behind and 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 be um, blind to it. I have to stay inside it. And I think that you know that that relationship with the keyboard and with text processing wasn't. Wasn't by choice, you know. No Chinese person voted to have this kind of relationship with this with the system, uh, but this is what we are, in a sense, left with in a realm when, over the past two centuries, all of these game changing technologies have been invented in largely in the United States, the Western world, and certainly with uh, the alphabet in mind. And again, not to revisit everything we just discussed. So, if you know, speaking to the, the the questioner at Unicode and also to you, it's it's can we conceptualize a text encoding scheme again, just to use that as an example, in which the goal is not to have it be invisible unless it breaks? Can we imagine a a a, a human machine human computer interaction which actually embraces the let's say the the Chinese Japanese Korean and variety of other non Latin uh, sometimes non-alphabetic scripts their relationship with with computing and new media and try thinking about what it would look like for code to have that as the norm as 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 opposed to the exception and i don't have an answer for you know what that exactly would look like but i suppose in certain ways uh it might look like a have you know the way that the way that programmers and developers have a what's called a command line relationship with with their systems. They can yes they they can open up a program, uh, they can open up Excel or they can open up Word and they can use that graphic user interface to do things um, the way that the rest of us do. But they also know how to pop open a terminal and and input uh, a pro, a protocol governed set. Of operands and variables and instructions, in which they are having a different relationship. Some might say a more direct relationship, but we don't need to worry about that. A different relationship with the programming power of that's on their desktop to achieve the same ends. And um, in many ways, uh, in many ways, again, a virtue, a virtue out of necessity many computer users, and I'm talking in the billions of computer users, have a kind of command-blind relationship with, with their machines. Um, and as of this moment, as of this moment, I think that still the core assumption about modern information technology is that those people are the exception to the rule. Well, if you actually take a census of all computer users in Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and then we need to extend it to those who, although have alphabets, also have to inter interact with certain kinds of additional programs and algorithms, like shaping algorithms for Arabic and Arabic-derived languages, um, uh, shaping and comp- compilation. Uh, programs for all Indic scripts. When you start taking the population of the entirety more or less of South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, uh, and then the Arabic and Arabic derived script writing and speaking world, we're not talking about the minority anymore. We're talking about the majority. And so what what would it be like if computer users, new media users of the Latin alphabet or the German alphabet or the French alphabet or the Cyrillic alphabet had a relationship with their machines that, in fact, drew upon some of the insights, experiences, methods, uh, 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 breakthroughs. Frankly, in and in some cases, that have come out of the so-called the so-called periphery, the so-called exceptional part of the history of information. That's um, you know that's that's what I think we we need. Um, we need more people studying. Uh, we need more people pushing in the direction of the globalization of the history of information, and uh, and I also think, incidentally, that that we need more. Um, I, I really, I, I mean, I say I say this everywhere I go. I said this at Google. I said this at Adobe and Microsoft and Unicode is uh, and IBM is hire more archivists. You know, if you. You hire these engineers. Some of them are these guru engineers who, who, who more or less have kind of. I, I, I had a friend who, in high school, who is just basically a, a, a genius. He's a music genius. He's a programming genius. And I remember one of the first jobs he he told me about was that he was more or less hired to do whatever he wanted at this one position. Uh, they they didn't want to set parameters on him. They wanted to you know see what he could do in their new. I think that companies. In that kind of space, should hire archival historians uh, coming out of grad school, postdoc level, and simply say to them, "Listen, here are our corporate archives. Let me open these door to you. Please go back into the teens, the twenties, the thirties, the forties. You know, pay attention to all of the eccentric, weird failures that either we were engaged in, or that, you know, people that were trying to deal with us were, in, were, were proposing." And give them another look, because so many of the things that are considered to be new or cutting edge or innovative or, God forbid, disruptive—which is a word I hate—all of these, I mean, so many of these things are in fact um, reanimations of ideas that emerged much earlier, but for a variety of reasons, in that in a, in a particular environment, they were laughed laughed out of the room, considered to be, you know. Absolutely uh, impossible. So there's a variety of things I think that can happen, both in an applied sense, you know, because we are living in this world and we do need this world to be better. I don't just mean faster; I mean better. Um, but also in the realm of critical thinking, scholarship, theory, it's it's not just that our histories of information are so parameterized to the alphabetic world, but even the th- even our theoretical frameworks and structures, by almost by definition, almost inevitably, because they are based upon this pretty consistent, pretty monocultural archival empirical base, can't help but in some way being monocultural themselves. And so we we need to, uh, you know, push. I think in that direction.
0: Those were beautiful final words, and so I therefore thank you very very much for your generous time and for talking to me about your new book, The Chinese Typewriter, A History. Thank you, Tom.
1: Thank you very much. It was, it was a lot of fun speaking with you.